Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? Various people have asked me what went wrong on my holiday and I could... I'm going to do a whole episode on everything that went wrong. But the one thing that I took from it that I'm telling everyone to do is have an air tag and put it in your luggage. My daughter had said before we went away, everyone on TikTok is saying, have an air tag in your luggage, otherwise you'll lose your luggage. And I said, look, we don't need that. We don't need the extra cost. The holiday's costing enough already. And then I thought, I really want my luggage to arrive. I don't want to be left without it. So we're going to have air tags. So I managed to get a deal, got the air tags. I'm going to try and keep this as short as possible. Suffice to say, arrive in Cyprus and my phone says, you've left a piece of luggage behind. And I thought, this is not good. And you're waiting at the carousel and some of your luggage comes and some of it doesn't. And went to the help desk and they asked my name. They said, oh, yes, we've had a message. Your luggage is still in Manchester. We'll get it to you. It'll be with you tomorrow. So I thought, well, this isn't great, but if it's going to be with us tomorrow, it could be worse. We'd spread all our belongings in different luggage. So it wasn't like one person had nothing. So go to the hotel. Next day, Dorneth and I get up thinking this is the day we get the luggage. Great. And then I had this thing come up to say, your luggage is in Cyprus. So I could see it had arrived. Very exciting. And I could track it. It was going through passport control. I was like, oh, look at it moving through the airport. And I wait because I was told it would come to the hotel. Nothing happens. Now, you can imagine how many phone calls I'm making at this point to the, to the hotel, getting the hotel to phone the airport, all of this stuff. Oh, no, no. They say the luggage isn't on the flight. It hasn't arrived. Trust me, I said, it has. I can see it there. And then I got all this, oh, well, you might get it tomorrow. We can't give any guarantees. So your girl didn't stand for any of that. I went into full on Philippa's not happy mode, particularly because lots of other things had gone wrong as well. I got a taxi to the airport and I stood there and I said, I'm not leaving until I have my luggage. Oh, no, no, it's not here. It's not here. I said, it's on the other side of this wall. I can see it. It's there beeping. Oh, no, no, we're closed. Anyway, eventually, I think they realised the mad English woman was not leaving until she had her luggage. And miraculously, it was brought through. So the moral of this story is, well, there are def- different morals of the story. One is always put your own label on as well. Because if I hadn't had my handwritten label on the luggage, they wouldn't have known it was me. The second moral is don't let people that perhaps haven't been trained enough at the airport put the airport luggage on because he didn't secure it properly. And the third moral is air tag it. I'm going to air tag everything now. Anything's going to be air tagged. I'm going to air tag the dog, the children, probably my box of biscuits. Anyway, you get the idea. My moral of the story is air tag everything. Anyway, I've waffled. Let's get on. What books are we talking about today? Oh, my goodness. We've got some brilliant books. What books are they? Let me tell you. We have got Good Bad Girl 
by Alice Feeney, Death of a Lesser God by Vasim Khan, and both Alice Feeney and Vasim Khan are coming on to talk to us about those fantastic books. Then I'm also going to review for you Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros, and let me get my bits of paper, Bodily Harm by Margaret Atwood, and the Light Years by Elizabeth Jane Howard, which is the first volume of the Casale Chronicles. Some great books. So let's get started straight away. And we're going to talk about Good Bad Girl by Alice Feeney. I love Alice's books. And so I was very excited to read this one. And the blurb is this. Good Bad Girl. Four women, three suspects, Two murders, one victim. 20 years after a baby is stolen from her pushchair, a woman is murdered in a care home. The two crimes are somehow linked and a good bad girl may be the key to discovering the truth. What a book. And let's go to Alice and hear more about it. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today the simply brilliant Alice Feeney, whose latest book is Good Bad Girl, Alice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I am very excited to talk to you. I have loved your books. Let's start off with you reading a first little bit about this wonderful book. So this is Good Bad Girl. The End. Mother's Day. People say there's nothing like a mother's love. Take that away, you'll find there's nothing like a daughter's hate. I told myself things would be different when I became a mum. I was determined not to make the same mistakes as my mother, and I believed that my child would always be loved. That's what I promised my daughter the day she was born. But I have made mistakes. Bad ones. And I have broken my promise more than once. I feel drunk from tiredness. My mind is a mess, and my thoughts feel slow jumbled, clouded by the fog of exhaustion, but she needs things, and she needs me to get them for her. Doing, finding, being what she needs became my occupation the day she was born. A job I thought I wanted, and now can't quit. Being a mother is a curious mix of love, hate, and guilt. I worry I am the only person who has ever felt this way and despise myself for thinking unthinkable thoughts. I wish my daughter would disappear. I push the buggy along the high street, hoping to get inside the supermarket before the rain comes, when an elderly woman blocks my path. Isn't she adorable? She says, staring at the sleeping child before beaming back at me. I hesitate, searching my befuddled brain for the correct response. Yes. How old? Six months. She's beautiful. She's a nightmare. Thank you, I say. I tell my face to smile, but it doesn't listen. Please don't wake her. That is all I ever think, because if someone or something wakes her, she will start to cry again. And if she cries again, I will cry again. Or do something worse. Inside the supermarket, I hurry to get the things I need. Baby formula, nappies, coffee. Then I see a familiar face. An old colleague, and for a moment I forget how tired I am. All day, every day. I listen to the childless friend who has become a stranger talk about their life, which sounds significantly more interesting than mine. I live alone and I miss having conversations with adults. We chat for a while. I mostly listen as I don't have much to say. Every day is exactly the same as the day before for me now. And while I listen, I forget that I no longer have any dreams or ambitions or a life of my own. My daughter became my world, my purpose, my everything the day she was born. I sometimes wish she hadn't been. I know I must never share these thoughts or speak them out loud, so instead I pretend to be okay, pretend to know what I'm doing. I'm good at pretending. But it's exhausting, like everything else in my life. Like her. The conversation lasts less than three minutes. My back is turned less than two. One minute later, my world ends. The buggy is empty. <gasps> oh my... Oh, I hope that was okay. 
That's the first time I've read it out loud. That was very surreal. I sort of scared myself a little bit. I hope it was all right. Oh, it was brilliant. I love the voices. I love the timing. And yes, what what a cliffhanger <laughs> it is and, and what an amazing book it is. Can you give us a bit of a summary of this particular book? This was, was such a, an interesting book for me to write because I thought about it for such a long time before I actually wrote a word. And it's it's a story with four women, basically, and you get to learn all about their characters and how they feel about the world and how they feel about their mother and daughter relationships. And that's, that's, at the, that's the main part of the story. And hopefully as readers go through the book, they get to piece together how these characters are all connected and solve the mystery that, that binds them all. Yes. I mean, with your books, I trust you implicitly because I know that there are going to be these wow moments throughout. There's a a big reveal at the end that always catches me sort of unawares. And I just think they are absolutely superb. But this felt a very emotional book as well. Was it a harder one to write than your other ones? It's definitely a different book, I think, to my other ones. And it was a very emotional journey. And I I just think those relationships between mothers and daughters are so unique and so complex. And it's, it's a relationship mm. which can't fail to influence us as women. Whether it's good or whether it's been bad, it does, I think, affect the rest of our lives and the way we see the world as well. And so it was something I really wanted to delve into because I've, I've got a lot of friends who have had very interesting and complex relationships with their mothers and now have very interesting and complex relationships with their own children, with their daughters. And sometimes you can see history repeating itself. And sometimes I think children inherit, in, inherit their parents' mistakes. And it's, it's that choice of whether we allow history to keep repeating itself or choose to try and stop it. And the development of those stories and the characters is just wonderful to read. And some of the characters I just... Uh, you know, I wanted to know them. I wanted to meet them in real life. They were just so wonderful. It's a celebration of women as well, the, the, the good, the bad and the ugly. Yes, absolutely. How did you manage the storyline for this? I mean, you must have had bits of string around your house from piece of paper to piece of paper. I'm always a, a planner. I always feel as though I can't start the book until I've worked it all out in my head first. So I tend to plan them for a very long time. Daisy was the, the longest journey. Daisy Darker took me five years. His and hers was the shortest journey. I, I wrote three drafts of that book in three months. So each book is very different for me. The relationship that I form with the characters and the story is different every single time. And Good Bad Girl fell somewhere in the middle. It was about two years from the initial idea to handing the book in. But, but I do, I plan everything out and I plot everything out. And I have these big boards with different coloured cards stuck all over them. And each character has their own colour and the different themes and the different points and the different plot twists. It's all tends to be planned out before I begin. The books do have a mind of their own and the stories decide how they want to be told, sometimes in a slightly different way. So things sometimes change during the writing process. But I always know where I'm heading, if that makes sense. I always, I always know the end that I'm trying to get towards. And I, I think if I didn't do that, it would be like going for a long walk without a map. I would spend the entire time worried that I was going to get lost instead of just enjoying the journey. And I like to try and enjoy the journey and let the story breathe and let the characters find themselves through the writing and tell the story their way once I completely know who they are. And you are the queen of the killer twist. So when you get the initial idea, do you exactly at that same time know what that killer twist is going to be? Or does sometimes the actual the twist come first? Sometimes the twist comes first. I've known, so Good Bad Girl is my sixth book and I have known the twist for book 10 for years. And sometimes I get really excited about book 10, but I really want it to be book 10. So I'm trying to be patient, but I'm so in love with that twist. So that's crazy. (laughs) Sometimes it's a character that I fall in love with, with Daisy, Darker. I was completely in love with Daisy. I still am. I still have such a soft spot for her. I, I missed her when I finished writing her. And with this book, I really love Edith. I really love the character of Edith. She feels so real to me. And again, she was a character that I actually missed when I finished writing. I would sometimes be walking around the house or something would happen to me. And I think, what would Edith say about this? And I was sad she wasn't there to tell me anymore. But once the book is, normally once the book is printed, all the characters tend to go a bit quiet. 
because I guess I can't change the story. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's the bit where it's like, oh, I can't make any more changes now. That's that's it for this one. So so no, it's 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 been such a journey with this book, and I really love all of the characters in this book, all of the women in this book for very different reasons. And I love that they are such different characters, yet have so many fundamental things about them in common. Because I think that's true of all of us in real life. Sometimes we meet other people and we think they're very different to us. But in reality, we have so many things in common with pretty much everyone we meet if we just dig below the surface and if we just learn, well, not to judge a book by its cover. Yes. And the same is absolutely true with this book, with Good Bad Girl, because you start off, as you say, you meet these characters and you might think, oh, I like that about that character or "Oh, I'm not sure about that. And yet, as the story reveals itself, we don't want to give any spoilers at all. As you say, there are links that bind them, links that push them away. It's all these extra layers that you add in. Yes, and of course we've got Dickens the dog. We mustn't forget Dickens the dog. Key yeah. key character. And uh, yeah, it was a joy to write. And it was also a very difficult book to write because I felt this pressure of wanting to, to tell their story the right way and to tell it how I thought they would want their story to be told as well. And I suppose especially because some of the story takes place in a care home a very long time ago, almost feels like a different life now, but I did work as a care assistant in a care home. Mm. And I sometimes think about the things that went on and the people I met there, even now, years and years later, I probably, they probably pop into my mind at least once a day. And I think, you know, there are things that we all go through and death is one of them. It's inevitable. Death is a part of life. And I think about those memories and I think about those people and I think about how often we underestimate the elderly and how we forget when we meet someone who looks significantly older than us that they used to be our age, that they used to be a teenager and that they used to be a child and that they've been through so many of the experiences and the emotions that we are experiencing. So I, I hope, as well as all the other feelings and twists and, and fun, fun, the fun part of the ride that I hope readers will experience, I hope it might make them think about how we judge certain people in society as well when they, when they read the story. And as well as having all the different colours for each character and plotting the story before you started, did you fully know everything about each character or did they surprise you as you started writing about them? There were definitely little bits that came up as I was writing would surprise me by doing something. And I think, gosh, really? How daring of you. I wouldn't do that. But my characters often surprise me or they will. OK, so I have, a, I have some clothes in my wardrobe which I would not choose. And one of them is actually a big cardigan covered in ladybirds. And I know that I bought that one day when I was out shopping and I knew that a character in this book would have chosen it. And it's still in my wardrobe and it still has the tags attached because it was her choosing it that day, not me. So it is interesting that they, sometimes they take over in the writing of the story. Sometimes they take over in real life because you pop yourself into these people's heads for sometimes years at a time and you start to think like them and you know you might be out in a restaurant and you'll look at the the choices on the menu and I'll end up ordering something that I don't actually like at all because I'm partly thinking well they would definitely have the mushroom risotto I don't even like mushrooms but it is interesting you you sort of get into character in a very strange way but I promise I don't take it too far I've never murdered anyone just to just as research <laughs> I draw the line at mushroom risotto. <laughs> yeah, you don't sit there at family occasions and go, right, killer twist for today is... <laughs> yeah, which one of you is not going to survive dinner? Yeah. No, I don't do that. Not yet anyway, you know, yes. never say never. <laughs> but I love that. I could possibly use that as an excuse to my husband for, for buying books. I could say, well, I'm writing a book about a character who's into books, so I have to go out. It's not me wanting to buy all these books. It's just, you know, on behalf of yes. my research. It's part of your research. Yes. That's it, yes. I, I find that with chocolate cake as well. No, I really shouldn't, but my character needs to, I need to experience this for my research <laughs> for my next book. So I, I have to have this very large slice of chocolate cake because it's going to help make the book better. Yeah, there are all sorts of things like that. <laughs> and it's dedication like that, Alice, that just puts you above, you know, average authors. It, you know, your dedication to the job and chocolate cake. I think so too. 
<laughs> I mean, you've written some incredible books. Thank What's you. been the most memorable moment for you so far in your writing career? Oh, gosh, I feel really lucky. There have been so many. It took me a really long time to get published. It took me nearly 10 years to get an agent. And sometimes I lie was going to be my last attempt because I was secretly writing. I was a, I was a BBC journalist and I would write on the train to work. I'd write in my lunch break if I ever had one, which I rarely did. I'd write on the way home. I'd write at weekends. And it was this secret habit of mine that nobody really knew about. And I would send a book off and I'd collect all the rejection letters. And then I had this idea for a book called Sometimes I Lie. And I decided I needed to stop this obsession, that maybe I just wasn't good enough and I was going to try one last time. And then somehow I got the best agent in the known universe and my whole life changed. And now I'm allowed to write my books full time and it's, it really is the best job in the world. So I feel incredibly lucky, but highlights, I do remember with rock, paper, scissors, sitting in my lounge just over there with my dog and my husband, just having a normal evening. And then my phone rang and it was my editor in America, Christine. And she had been asking me to change something in the next book that was going to be published. And I kept saying, I'm not sure I want to change that. I actually quite like it as is. And the time here must have been half past nine in the evening. And I saw my phone and I thought, oh my goodness, Christine is calling me late at night now to tell me to change this one <laughs> sentence that she doesn't like. This is, you know, she's lost her marbles. And I answered the phone. I said, hello. And then the whole like publishing team were on the phone and my agent was on the phone and I had no clue, genuinely no clue what was going on. And they told me that, that Rock, Paper, Scissors was a New York Times bestseller. And I just remember, because I didn't expect it, not in my wildest dreams, I was crying. I was kind of laughing. I thought they'd called the wrong author. <laughs> I, said, I had this moment where I thought, this is too good to be true. Maybe it isn't. They've called the wrong person. They think they're calling Jane Harper or someone else. And it, they did mean to call me and it was about my book. And I remember my knees went all wobbly and I collapsed on the floor like a child. And I was just sitting cross-legged and laughing and crying. And my husband was like, what is going on with you? Are you okay? Should I call an ambulance? Do you need help? It was just this magical moment. And I'll, I'll never forget that because it felt, it was one of the first times it felt real. It was, I guess I spend so much time alone at my desk with my stories and my characters. And then once or twice a year, you leave the house to do events or to do interviews. But most of the time, it's just me and the dog and my laptop. So when you have a moment like that and you realize that readers around the world are really enjoying the books that I, I, I work so hard on and I care so much about, it's just magic. It's pure magic and it really is the best feeling in the world and it's the best job in the world. And I think I'm just incredibly lucky. Well, we're incredibly lucky to be able to read your books because they are absolutely first class. But we come to the final question, Alice, which is the most important one on this podcast. So please prepare yourself. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what biscuit was powering the writing of Good Bad Girl? What was your biscuit of choice? Oh, my goodness. Well, it's the same always for me. It's Kit Kats. I, it's always going to be a Kit Kat. I have lucky Kit Kats and they're actually in a jar on my desk. So if there's an emergency with the writing, the jar gets opened and the Kit Kats come out. And then the word count goes up. If there are any, you know, <laughs> aspiring authors out there and they are, want to know the secret, Kit Kats are the secret. <laughs> and are we talking chunky Kit Kats or the four bars or the two bars? Let's have specifics. Well, it's two finger Kit Kats is the standard lucky Kit Kat. But when I was in America last year, I had a big tour and it was my first time doing a big tour. And I confess I was quite nervous. And I was on my way to my first event. And I thought what I really need is a Kit Kat. And in America, they have these six finger Kit Kats. I've never seen anything like it. They are absolutely huge. And I thought to myself, if I had those in England, <laughs> I could probably write much faster. So I'm off on tour again in a couple of weeks. I might pack my suitcase full of giant Kit Kats yes. to bring back with me and we'll see what happens. When they wonder why you're taking one empty suitcase, it's because you're just going to be loading it up and bringing them back. All the giant Kit Kats are coming back to England, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I've never heard of a six-bar Kit Kat, so I'm on my way to book a flight immediately. But it's just wonderful to talk to you and to hear more about your latest brilliant book, Good Bad Girl, Alice Feeney. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. 
much for having me and thank you for all the brilliant questions. I've loved it. Thank you. Coming up, one more interview and more book reviews. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So now we come to Death of a Lesser God by Vaseem Khan. Oh, my goodness, this series of books. Are, it's just incredible. Let me read you the blurb on this one. Bombay, 1950. James Whitby, sentenced to death for the murder of prominent lawyer and former Quit India activist Fareed Mazamda, is less than two weeks from a date with a gallows. In a last-ditch attempt to save his son, Whitby's father, Charles, forces a new investigation into the killing. The investigation leads Inspector Persis Wadia of the Bombay Police to the old colonial capital of Calcutta, where, with the help of Scotland Yard criminalist Archie Blackfinch, she uncovers a possible link to a second case, the brutal murder of an African-American GI during the Calcutta killings of 1946. My goodness, it's just uh, uh, an incredible book. But let's go and talk to Vasim now. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today Vaseem Khan, whose latest fantastic book is Death of a Lesser God. Vaseem, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here, Philippa. It's very good to talk to you. Let's start, if we may, by you reading us a little bit from the beginning first chapter of Death of a Lesser God. Uh, OK, so it's Bombay. It's 1950. And the opening chapter is narrated by James Whitby, who's one of our protagonists, and, uh, and it begins thus. They say that some crimes can never be forgiven. I don't believe that. If history has taught us anything, it's that notions of right and wrong are a movable feast. Conquest by arms, infanticide, the burning of witches. Through the ages, men have found ways to justify all manner of evil. My name is James Whitby, and I have been convicted of a crime I did not commit. Aurora came to see me today. He was dressed in his customary pale herringbone suit with a tie so heinous it might have frightened death away. Dark hair slicked back, a trim moustache and tortoiseshell spectacles, a neat little man with the grace and bearing of a pianist. It was a day after the Supreme Court turned down my appeal. There was a certain irony to the fact that this man, regarded as one of the sharpest legal minds in the country, is also my sole remaining confidant. Friend would be too lavish a word. Aurora is a force of nature, and it's damn difficult to befriend a hurricane. There are times I look at him, this man whom I've come to admire and think, is there a small corner of his heart that believes me to be guilty? He professes not to wish to know or indeed to care. But no man is an island. No native can exist in the India of today and not feel some affinity for the political sentiments that have racked this nation for nigh on half a century. In court, he urged the jury not to conflate the evils of empire with the crime that I was charged with. Did they heed him? 
I cannot believe that a coal of resentment does not burn in the heart of every Indian when faced with a man such as myself. I embody everything they came to hate. I am the ogre of their past. I am the giant with feet of clay. Very, very good. Thank you so much. I love hearing books read by the author. Can you summarise this book for us? So Death of a Lesser God is the fourth in my Malabar House series set in 1950s India. And this is just a few years after Indian independence and the horrors of partition, uh, when a million Indians died at, at each other's hands when the country was divided, uh, and Gandhi's assassination. So it's an incredibly turbulent time in Indian history following 300 years of the British presence on the subcontinent. So we're looking at a post-colonial society trying to come to terms uh, with its own independence and renegotiating a new relationship with its former, former masters, the British. And into this environment, I, I put India's first female police detective, Persis, Persis Wadia, who qualifies and nobody knows what to do with her. And so in the first book in the series, Midnight at Malabar House, they shove her into Bombay's smallest police station uh, in, called Malabar House with the rest of the rejects and the misfits. Um, and she's working with an Englishman named Archie Blackfinch, who's a forensic scientist from the Met Police, who's tasked to help the Bombay police set up its own forensic service. So that's how they come, come to be. Uh, appearing uh, throughout these books. And in this fourth book, Death of a, Death of a Lesser God, uh, James Whitby, who I've just introduced, is an Englishman who's born and raised in India, who's convicted of murdering an Indian lawyer. Uh, he claims he's innocent. He claims he's the victim of a sort of reverse racism, uh, being blamed for the ills of the Raj, even though he himself never participated in, in, in that. Uh, and it's uh, his father, who is an industrialist, forces a reinvestigation. And so Persis and Archie have 11 days to prove whether or not James Whitby is innocent before he is hanged. And what a story it is. And I would say you don't have to have read every book in the series of Malabar House. You can read this one as your first book of the series you, and, and then go from there. Yes, I think with crime series, uh, it's always incumbent upon the author to reintroduce the characters and the setting for, for new readers who dip in at, uh, at a midpoint in, in the series. And yes, this is a story that sits on its own. And the location is crucial. It's almost a character in its own right. How do you go about researching all the historical elements? Well, a lot of people say to me that they've never been to India and... Uh, and and one of the things they, they enjoy about my books, my first series was set in modern India, beginning with the unexpected inheritance of Inspector Chopra, about a, about a, a middle-aged policeman in, in Bombay who retires, forced into retirement, and he has to solve murders, but he also inherits this baby elephant. And, you know, that, that series basically gave me a career. I wrote five books in that series. And I did that because, although I was born and raised in the UK, I lived in India for a decade, and I saw this incredible country changing before my eyes from a almost pre-industrial economy to the near global superpower that we think of India as today. And so you've got this, this vibrant new India with money flowing into the urban centres and call centres and, and skyscrapers and all the rest of it. But you've also got the legacy of old India, slums and poverty on a scale we can't imagine and caste prejudice and the rest of it. And so because I lived there for a decade and because my heritage is from, from India, I, I wanted to not only explore modern India, but then with this series, the Malabar House books, I wanted to find out the, where are the roots of this India? Where did this India come from? Because India is an ancient country, but the truth is that this modern India is a reflection of what happened after 1947 when India became independent and had to decide after so hundreds of years of the British being in charge, what kind of country it was going to be. And for me, researching that era is a delight because a lot of the history that I learn is the history I wish we'd been taught in school in England, but I wasn't. History of my ancestors. Mm. And also it's the history of the relationship between Britain and England. And because I have this dual perspective, for me, that's important. Not, And I often say this, not every Brit who went to India was a sinner and not every Indian was a saint. Many Brits went to India because they were told that you can make your fortune there, not because they wanted to conquer the country. And so it's those stories that are most intriguing to me. And that's why books like Death of a Lesser God, they weave in a lot of characters that are non-Indians. They are characters from Britain. They're characters uh, from Europe and America so that we can get a perspective uh, from both sides of the, of the, of the fence. Is it difficult, though, to draw a line in doing the research and then start 
writing because if it was me I would want to keep on researching and researching and not know when to just let go and have the freedom of writing. Well, I think the first rule of a book like this is that it's a murder mystery and your audience are crime fiction readers. So, you know, I write in a golden age style where the intellectual challenge is the most important thing. You know, it's why I, the books have been compared in style to Christie and I get invited to the International Agatha Christie Festival uh, regularly to speak there because of that. And so for me, if you've got too much, you can't knowledge dump. You know, I put in lots of things and people write to me from around the world saying, oh, we didn't know that about about the British time in India. We didn't know these these things. And we're so glad that you've, you've put, brought these things up for us. But at any point, if it looks as if the if the research is encumbering the forward movement of the plot, that's when, you know, your editor steps in and says, sorry, Vaz, we're not having that, you know, red ink, out it goes. And how did you manage the storyline? Do you have a very complicated number of pieces of paper and strings linking each one, or is it something that just flows? Well, I studied accounts at LSC and I was a management consultant for a decade, so I've got this enormous spreadsheet <laughs> with lots and lots of columns. I mean, you know, it would make your eyes go funny if you had a look at it. My plots are quite complex. There's lots of cryptic clues and, and, and there's lots of historical references and themes that I want to explore about India. And so I, you know, have layers and layers of planning that takes me months and months before I actually start start writing. But in the end, I think it works for the audience that I am appealing to because they get engrossed in these books and I get lots of mail and and people, you know, saying, oh, this is really hard. I couldn't work this out. And for me, that's 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 the that's the beauty of a of the intellectual challenge, I think, is the foremost thing for me in reading crime fiction. Beautiful characters, great setting, but you know, ultimately you've got to intrigue the reader, right from the first page. But when you're writing a book in a series, is it hard because in some ways do you have to hold back some of your ideas for the next book rather than just putting everything in the one? No, no, because they all stand alone and because each one I have a clear vision, eventually I get to a clear vision, I should say, um, about what that particular book is exploring. What is it I want to say? Because I want these books to be meaningful to not just to me, but to the people who read them so that they go away and they think, oh, there was a message in this book that I'm taking away and that can sit with me. And that I want them to be able to think about those books for, you know, days and weeks afterwards and take some more and maybe want to dip back into it. For me, those are the best kind of reads when I think of my, my own experience. So I put all of my energies into each, each book and then I worry about the next one. And which is the most painful part, plotting it or editing it? I, I despise editing. I utterly hate <laughs> having to edit. And so I constipate over every single word and I will look after you know it would never be my first draft that goes to my editor it'll be like the 82nd draft oh uh, I take that long <laughs> over it but it does mean that I get very very few edits back and you know Philippa to be honest I've been doing this a long time uh, you know I, it took me 20 years to get published in the first place with seven rejected novels wow. yeah I was published eventually at age 40 and you know I'd spent 20 years learning my craft and 10 novels novels in now you know, I've learned and learned. And every day is a new learning experience. Every book is a new learning experience. Feedback from readers is a new learning experience. You know, lots of people write to me about these books and they say to me, you know, we love the character of Persis. Where did she come from? You know, why did you pick a woman in that period? In, and, and, the, and you know, I learn from, from my readers and I, I answer them. And I say, because India was a very paternalistic society and a police force in India in 1950 was very misogynistic. So I have some things to say about that. And it's important to me to say those things and to help you guys understand what the country was like then. Which the book certainly achieves what it, it did for me. But you're a busy person. Not only are you writing these fantastic books, you're also chair of the Crime Writers Association. You were heavily involved in the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival this year. How do you manage all of that? Well, I've got four clones, obviously. <laughs> it's been a very, very busy couple of years for me, but in a good way. Chairing Harrogate Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival is, is an honour that you get once in a lifetime as a crime writer. So I was you know, delighted to do that. And it went wonderfully, wonderfully well. Some great writers from around the world came and, and made it a great event. But more importantly, readers, so many readers, in spite of the wet weather in Yorkshire, they packed out the the hall every single event and it was just wonderful and I can't express my appreciation enough to people. 
Chairing the CWA, I'm the first non-white chair of the 70-year-old Crime Writers Association. And I think that's, that, that's both not important, but it's also important just as a, a symbol of how the industry has changed and how, once again, I can only thank readers and, and people like yourselves for embracing uh, new stories and new voices. Ten years ago, when I was first published with The Unexpected Inheritance of Inspector Chopra, I looked around and I was literally maybe one, two writers of colour in the crime fiction genre. And yet now, 10 years later, there's many, many more. And that's purely because the industry has embraced inclusivity. And it's not, it's not as a sop to us. It's simply because I think we've recognised that readers are intelligent creatures. Readers can make up their own damn minds about the kind of books they want to read. And they won't be frightened by, you know, in, in quote marks, an odd name on the cover, such as my, my name. If they like the books, if they feel that they have gained something from those books... They will come back to the world. They will come back and read more of those authors. And it's important, I have to say this, without hopefully sounding like a snake oil salesman, it's so important that readers buy books, not necessarily mine, but just books of authors that you like reading, because once you do that, the industry wakes up and the publishers wake up and say, oh, that author, actually, they have a reader, reader base. So we don't need to be scared about you know, doing something different because readers are, are, are voting with their feet. So it's so, so important. And I try and buy lots and lots of books during the year to support authors that I, I love. Absolutely. But there's, I think there's still more that can be done. I don't think we're anywhere there yet. It's a work in progress. Absolutely. And we should just mention as well your podcast, The Hot Chili Writers, with your pal Abir. It's a super podcast. Well, that's nice of you to say. That's nice of you to say. Um, Abir Mukherjee and I, we are, we've been good friends. We published roughly the same time, Abir, just after I was. And, you know, I, I invited him out for a drink and we met in a pub nearly a decade ago and we've been firm friends ever since. And the podcast was just our idea of trying to discuss books, discuss crime novels, chat to famous writers but also have a lot of fun. And people who tune into the Red Hot Chili Writers, they know what I'm talking about. We spend half our time, you know, talking about books in a way that you might not get on a, a regular book podcast, which is no disrespect to other podcasts. It's just that we, we're a pair of idiots and we behave as such. <laughs> no, it's great fun to listen to. Well, we come to the last question for this episode, Vasim, which is the most important question. So please prepare yourself. And it is, what biscuit was powering the writing of Death of a Lesser God. What is your biscuit of choice? Biscuit of choice. Do you know what? If you'd have asked my missus this, I mean, she's a, she's a biscuit monster. She was until until recently. Uh, you know, we'd have like 20 different types of biscuit in the house. Wow. Personally, I'm quite partial to hobnobs. So I quite like OT biscuits. I class them as health food, technically. Absolutely. Oats help lower cholesterol and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. Health, healthy biscuits. Yeah, you really should get them on prescription. They're that healthy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, it's just a pleasure to talk to you and hear more about Death of a Lesser God. Vaseem Khan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Philip. Splendid. Now let's go on to the next book I want to tell you about, Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaris. I heard about this book. I had to acquire it. I read it and I loved it. Listen to this. This is more one of your fantasy type books. 20-year-old Violet Sorengale was supposed to enter the scribe quadrant, living a quiet life among books and history. Now the commanding general, her tough-as-talons mother, has ordered Violet to join the hundreds of candidates striving to become the elite of Navarre, dragon riders. But when you're smaller than everyone else and your body is brittle, death is only a heartbeat away. Because dragons don't bond to fragile humans, they incinerate them. With fewer dragons willing to bond than cadets, most would kill Violet to better their own chances of success. The rest would kill her just for being her mother's daughter. Like Zayden Riorson, the most powerful and ruthless wing leader in the rider's quadrant. She'll need every edge her wits can give her just to see the next sunrise. Yet with every day that passes, the war outside grows more deadly. The kingdom's protective wards are failing and the death toll continues to rise. Even worse, Violet begins to suspect leadership is hiding a terrible secret. Everyone at Basquith has an agenda, so sleep with one eye open, because once you enter, there are only two ways out. Graduate or die. Let's do the first sentence. Chapter one. 
Conscription day is always the deadliest. Maybe that's why the sunrise is especially beautiful this morning, because I know it might be my last. Now, you know me. I'm not a fan of most fantasy books. I love this book. It was so easy to get into. I was hooked. It's just got you rooting. It's it's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. There's some spice in it, I'll tell you. Some spicy scenes. Uh, but I just thought it was great. And I've already heard about the next one that's coming out in the series. So it's well worth reading Fourth Wing straight away to get ahead of that next one. So that's Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaris. Yes, please. Thank you very much. Next one is one I read on holiday, Bodily Harm by Margaret Atwood. Let me read you the blurb of this. Rennie Wilford is a young journalist running from her life. When she takes an assignment to a Caribbean island, she tumbles into a world where no one is quite what they seem, least of all Yankee Paul. Is Paul a drug smuggler? A CIA operative? Either way, he's trouble, and his offer to Rennie of a no-hooks, no-strings affair will suddenly draw her into a lethal web of corruption. Let me read you the first sentence. Well, the first sentence is this. <laughs> this is how I got here, says Rennie. Actually, I don't need to tell you any more. It's a Margaret Atwood book, folks. It's brilliant. I chose it to read on holiday because I thought, oh, it's based in the Caribbean. Yes, I'm going to Cyprus, but still it's holiday. Certainly what happens on, in this book are not things that I would want to happen to me on holiday, and that's for sure. I thought it was super brilliant. It's sharp. It's different to a lot of her other books that I've read, but oh my goodness, it's just excellent. Really enjoyed it. And the last one is The Light Years, the volume one in the Caslay Chronicles by Elizabeth Jane Howard. I have read this book a long time ago, oh, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. And it was coming up in a book club, Lauren and the Books on YouTube. It's coming up in her Patreon book club. So I thought, I'm going to read it. I took it away on holiday. And, you know, I read it and then I had to miss the book club, which was very irritating. I had There was something else I had to do. I'll read you the blurb. Actually, I've got a controversial view this time. So here we go. Here's the blurb. Every summer, the Casley brothers, Hugh, Edward and Rupert, return to the family home in the heart of the Sussex countryside with their wives and children. There they are joined by their formidable parents and unmarried sister, Rachel, to enjoy two glorious months of picnics, games and sun-drenched excursions to the coast. But not even this idyllic setting can soothe the siblings' fears and heartache. Hugh, haunted by memories of the Great War, is terrified at the looming prospect of a second. Edward, charming and handsome, is torn between his wife and his latest infidelity. And Rupert, a talented painter, is in turmoil over his inability to please his demanding new wife. Meanwhile, Rachel's unflinching loyalty to the family means risking her one chance at happiness with Sid, the woman she feels so passionately about. And the first sentence... Lansdowne Road, 1937. The day began at five to seven when the alarm clock, given to Phyllis by her mother when she started service, went off and on and on and on until she quenched it. Edna, in the other creaking iron bed, groaned and heaved over, hunching herself against the wall. Even in summer she hated getting up, and in the winter Phyllis sometimes had to haul the bedclothes off her. I mean, it's it's lovely and it's so nostalgic. It's like, you know, Sunday night BBC TV. But I shouldn't have read it on holiday. Because reading this book in, it was at least 40 degrees. It was in the middle of the awful heat wave. Even the hotel were telling people not to, to go out in the sun, to stay in the shade. The bartenders were doing very good business because they were just saying to people, oh, stay here, don't go out in the sun. That wasn't the place to read it. It would have been much better to have come home to the awful weather here in the summer and read it here. And I'm so cross with myself for reading it then. I should have left it and just read it. I didn't enjoy it as much as I remember loving it the first time round. So I'm going to leave it and I'm going to read it again, maybe next year. And I'm going to make sure I read it in 
British weather, not steaming hot 40 degrees where I spent most of my time in the pool with just my head sticking out reading a book. That's that's what I did. But those are your books. We've had some great ones, hopefully, a range of different ones. And I do hope that one, two, three, four, five of them are ones that you're putting on your list as well. So let's have a quick recap. We've had Good Bad Girl by Alice Feeney and Alice very kindly joined us on the podcast. And we had Death of a Lesser God by Vaseem Khan and Vaseem very kindly joined us. I also reviewed three other books, which were Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros, Bodily Harm by Margaret Atwood and The Light Years by Elizabeth Jane Howard. Those are your books. I've talked enough. I need to leave you. I'll be back on Friday with a short episode. I hope you're okay. I can't wait to talk to you again. Got some more brilliant books to talk to you about. Keep eating those biscuits, keep reading those books, and just look after yourselves. And I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 